Good morning, brothers and sisters, and happy Palm Sunday morning. It is a little strange to say happy Palm Sunday in the circumstances that we're living in today. Uh, my name is Chris Anderson, and I'm the teacher of Class A40. Um, and what's interesting to me is uh, just this morning I was reading in Psalm 119, which you know is a great meditation on the Word of God. And I came across uh, this verse, or these two verses, I guess. Uh, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. And that is really going to be part of the theme of Romans chapter 6 today. So I'm going to do a short review of how we reach chapter 6. And so while you are reaching for your Bibles and turning uh, to chapter 6, I'll start with a short summary. Several weeks ago in chapter 1, God's wrath was revealed to us against ungodliness. And we got kind of a a very strong beginning to Paul's teaching. Then in chapter 2, we learned that God will righteously judge both Gentiles and Jews. In chapter 3, we are also told that no one can be saved by obeying the law. But Paul makes this profound announcement that justification comes by means of a righteousness from God that has now been revealed, a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 4, Paul held up Abraham as kind of the gold standard of justification by faith, and we need to keep in mind that Abraham lived before the giving of the law. Then last week in chapter 5, Paul gave us one of his famous therefores, saying, Therefore, through justification by faith we are saved, from God's wrath, are reconciled, and have peace with God. And in today's lesson, in chapter 6, Paul turns from the subject of justification by faith, and he goes to a new topic of sanctification. Now, my my comments today may seem a bit long, so I don't want us to get lost in where we're going. We're going to read uh, chapter 6 in three passages. The first one will focus on abounding grace. The second one will focus on dead to sin. And the third one will focus on being alive to Christ and walking in newness of life. So beginning, we're actually going to, I'm going to throw you a curve here, back up into chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 20. So uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6 will make a little more sense. So I'll read from the New American Standard Version. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase or be in abundance? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, we'll stop there. It's just a three or four verses, but it's important to stop because there's a lot here. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind is why on earth would the Apostle Paul ask this question of new believers in Rome, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Well, it will help, I think, to uh, unpack a little bit of this question by looking at several issues that it raises. The first one is the possible conflict between sin and grace. So first we'll recall that back in chapter 5, Paul told us that we now have access to God's grace. 
He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Paul says that with the coming of the law, we became more aware of our sin, and that, quote, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Also, Paul teaches that we are no longer under the law, but under grace, and he repeats that, that statement later in verse 14. Well, we have always known the basic laws of right or wrong. This is not hard for us. But new specific laws bring new opportunities to sin. And of course, to say keep sinning is certainly not what the law says. And as we'll see in a minute, saying that Christians are not under the law does not mean that the law has no further relevance to us. So the second issue that uh, is raised relates to what we just were mentioning about the law is ignoring the law. What does it do? I mean, how does it apply to the new Christian church? Now, ignoring what the law states or acting against the law is the essence of a heresy known as antinomianism. And that long word is, is basically composed of two components, anti, meaning against or opposed to, and nomianism, or from the Greek word nomos, which means law. So an antinomian, for example, might teach this. He might say Christians don't need to practice or uh, live in accordance with the laws of the Old Testament because Christ's merit have freed us from the law. Also, during the early church centuries, uh, you probably heard that there was a, a sect or a, a, a heresy around the, the philosophy of Gnosticism. And a Gnostic would say that we can attain, obtain perfection through special knowledge and not through uh, uh, following Old Testament laws. So this was, this was an issue in the Roman church, apparently, and something that, that even Paul was accused of. Now, moving forward in history, we eventually will come to the 16th century with the Reformation. And during the Reformation, the Catholic Church accused Martin Luther of antinomianism, just like Paul was accused of the heresy. They said his teaching of justification by faith alone, without regard to an obligation to do good works, was, quote, against the law of God, because it would be viewed as a license to sin. Now, the third issue that we should look at here is, does the Old Testament apply to New Testament Christians, and if so, how? Now, Paul not only deals with the heresy we just talked about in Romans 6, but also when he wrote his epistle to the Galatian church, he talked about this in a very helpful metaphor, comparing the law to a tutor. And this leads us to our third issue, how does the Old Testament apply to us? Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And what's interesting about this metaphor is that we don't forget the lessons our tutors teach us, even after they've gone, and we are no longer, quote, under the tutor. But as we move forward in life, we follow and build upon the lessons they've taught us, and that includes lessons from this Old Testament tutor that Paul is talking about. 
So we can see here that the gospel is not antinomian. It has the Old Testament as its foundation and the living word of God as its focus and fulfillment. Today we might see anti, excuse me, antinomian views in people who do not acknowledge the principles of the law and as an example perhaps don't see the need to acknowledge sin or to repent due to a misguided view of God's grace. Okay, lastly, in this little section, we'll talk about the fourth issue, which is how do good works apply here? Okay, we've clarified the role that law continues to have in the New Testament area, uh, but we remember that the law involves many, many commandments and rules, so it's probably helpful that we think a little bit further here of the proper place of works in salvation with some additional background. First, we understand that the Old Testament Jews had a works mentality. And then later, we know that the New Testament church sometimes had to oppose people that we call Judaizers, Christians from the Jewish background that wanted to continue with their Jewish ceremonial and other laws as a part of their Christian faith. Even later, the 16th century Reformation opposed the works mentality of the medieval church. And you'll remember, or we've already referred once to Martin Luther, and he is often quoted as saying, Justification is by faith alone, or sola fide. But Luther also famously said this, that we are justified by Christ, by faith alone, but not in a faith that is alone. And also while Paul taught about justification by faith alone, he also had a lot to say about the role of good works. So, what we see here and where we are going is these two issues of justification now and sanctification. And upon our justification without works, we enter into the life of sanctification. And this is where works actually do become very important. Now, Paul made this point very clearly to the Ephesian church in chapter 2 of Ephesians, where he said, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we understand that justification is instantaneous. We become righteous by imputation, as taught in Romans chapter 5, but sanctification is not instantaneous. It is a lifelong process of learning to say no to the old man and yes to the new life. It's of growing in moral and spiritual maturity under the power of the Holy Spirit and walking in the ways of God. So in concluding these first few verses, we should understand that we cannot live in sin so that grace may abound, because we are to be engaged in doing the good works of God, motivated by God's grace and our love for Jesus and our neighbors, so that God's grace can abound through good works, not through more sin. Paul's abhorrence of the let sin that grace may abound heresy, as he expressed with his God forbid, and his reminder in verse 2 that we died to sin, leads us to our next passage, verses 3 through 7. So this is our part now. Our focus will be on being dead to sin. And so let me pick up now with uh, verses 3 through 7 of Romans chapter 6. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection, 
knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. Now we're going to look at uh, a couple words here. We're going to look at the word baptized, and we're going to uh, spend a few moments here talking about this very important word of walk, that we're to walk in newness of life. We just saw that word in the, uh, in the verse I read a minute ago from Ephesians chapter 2. Um, and uh, it's very interesting to look at the Greek word for this. Uh, I, I, pardon my pronunciation, I don't know Greek, but the word would be peripateo. Now, we have a, a word that came from that that's in our language. We don't use it much, but peripatetic means someone who travels from place to place. And the meaning uh, wrapped up into this Greek word would include things like walking about or roaming, making one's way, or progressing. And there's a Hebrew aspect in the Hebrew word for this word it, uh, about maintaining a certain kind of walk of life and conduct. So then, having been justified by God and given eternal life, we can certainly see that continuing in sin rather than walking in newness of life would be a terrible offense to the Savior and His righteousness, and why Paul says it may it never be. One reason for this is that we were spiritually dead in our sins under the control of Satan, but now we are no longer under this grip of sin, no longer a slave to sin, but we have been regenerated. That's a new generation or a new genesis into new life. So how can a sinner be united in the likeness of Christ's resurrection, be raised to new life, and not be different, and not act differently? Now as a part of this dying to sin and being raised to newness, Paul now talks about the imagery of baptism, uh, which we're going to talk about in just, uh, well, for just a couple minutes. And as we all know, being good, good uh, Southern Baptists, our church affirms the statement of faith of the Southern Baptist Convention as contained in the document that's titled The Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Baptism is described in that document in Article 7, and you can find that if you wish, and I'd recommend it to you on the church website. Go to About at the top there, then take the next link to What We Believe, and finally the last link to Doctrinal Statement. Now this is the excerpt on Christian baptism. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience, and it symbolizes four things. One, the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. Two, the believer's death to sin. Three, the burial of the old life. And fourth, the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. Further, it's a testimony to a person's faith in the final resurrection of the dead. And lastly, being a church ordinance, it's a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. Now, I, we all have probably favorite things in the scriptures, things we like to go to, and I like to share a couple verses because there's a favorite thing that I have, and I call it threads. You might call it themes, but we see themes that run throughout the whole Testament and things we used to think, oh, this is New Testament teaching. You go, oh, wait a minute. Here it is. I find it in Genesis. I find it in Isaiah. And it's actually all over the place. And one of these would be living water. You can find references to living water and the meaning of living water throughout the Bible. And there is a baptism thread. And this I thought was very interesting. Peter in his epistle talks about it in chapter 3. 
where he's, I'm going to pick up in the middle of his sentence, it says, the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's kind of fun to see how baptism links us all the way back to Noah and his family and their safe passage through the flood. Now, before we leave these two verses, uh, Numbers 3 and 4, regarding being baptized both into Christ's death and his resurrection, I think one thing that comes to my mind, at least, an important aspect of baptism by immersion is the physical sensation. We go under the cool water. We have to close our eyes and hold our breaths. And finally, the pastor pulls us up while the water rushes off our heads and our clothes. And it's very physical and it's very memorable. Our baptism stays in our memories and it reminds us that we were raised for a purpose, to live a new life that is no longer under the reign of death. So next, how do we actually do that? How do we die to sin? How do we live a new life? Well, first, let's be clear that it is God who does all the heavy lifting here. He regenerates, he justifies, he sanctifies. But for our part, we do not stay at the riverbank of the baptism. Verse 4, as we've talked about, says we walk in newness of life. And walking is something we have to do. Then there's a dying part. And this requires us to stop the sinful practices of our old life. You remember the verse I read at the beginning from Psalm 119. We hate wrongful pathways. And the newness part requires us to deliberately focus on the new things we must learn to do. New believers need new skills for a new life. And these are not new life skills that we talk about in the secular world, but these are new life skills. And we all know what these can include. I made a short list of Bible study where we learn new truths, attending church regularly where we learn new practices such as how to worship. Then there's entering into the family, the church of God, and participating in family events and getting to know our sisters and our brothers. Then the, important, uh, the importance of being discipled and also discipling others is something we experience in the new life. And finally, talking to our Lord through prayer where we learn more about the God and Trinity that we worship. Now secondly, about this dying to sin and living a new life, Paul teaches us that justification begins the process of our sanctification and that this is a lifelong journey of practicing spiritual disciplines. You know, new life is not in Christ, as you've heard before, is not about punching our ticket to heaven and becoming religious couch potatoes. And the second commandment here, the second great commandment here, comes to mind when Christ tells us we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Paul echoes this in his epistle to the Corinthians in the second uh, book, chapter 5. He says, Christ died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And thirdly, I thought it would be helpful to think about um, the famous theme of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's teaching, that the grace we are given is not a cheap grace, but we are called to obedience in doing the works of righteousness. Uh, to quote from his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. 
is communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, a grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Then Dallas Willard also has this to say about discipleship. He's talking about our current church, not First Baptist Keller, but the state of Christian churches in the U.S. He says, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom of Christ. It is now understood to be a part of the, quote, good news, that one does not have to have or not have to be a life student of Jesus in order to be a Christian and receive forgiveness of sins. He goes on to say that this gives a precise meaning to the phrase, quote, cheap grace, though it would be better described as a costly faithlessness. So now we come to our, our final group of verses, verses 8 through 14. The theme here is alive to Christ. So I'll pick up with verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, and death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, or in the same way, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts or evil desires, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And I'm reminded here that Romans Chapter 12, verse 1 belongs right here too. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And I've been trying to emphasize a few words as I read, and one of those words is consider. Uh, a few minutes ago we were talking about this word that comes up that's very important, the word walk. And now we're going to look at consider. He says, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Some versions you have, uh, maybe reading from, may say, reckon yourselves. This is a word that is an accounting term. It means to count or calculate. In other words, we might say it, it means to carefully think about, perhaps even to meditate on. So then this is not a verse that we should be driving over quickly. And the word consider acts like a speed bump. It needs to slow us down so that we may look carefully. So here's something to think about. When will we take this time in our busy schedules and our busy lives to carefully consider, to think about, to analyze, and ponder how we may be thinking, feeling, speaking, acting in various ways that are not dead to sin? Now, maybe uh, part of our staying at home with this new virus around us is going to give us more time to do this kind of hard work of, of thinking deeply about our lives. Continuing with the speed bump metaphor, if I might, we now reach the passage where the rubber meets the road. Paul uses one of his therefores in verse 12. And now it's time to consider the needed changes so that we are living in newness of life. So what does Paul tell us that we must do? 
And we'll recognize that we are still in the midst of a spiritual warfare, and Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. But what are the things that he tells us in this passage that we should do or not do? And if you'll look at verses 11 through 13 in particular, you'll see some of these listed. I've, I've counted four. I think there are four do's, and I'm sorry, two do's and two do nots. The first one he says is do count or consider yourselves as dead to sin. Well, how do we do that? Well, we can start with prayer and meditation and I, trying to identify the thoughts and behaviors that need to die. I know that hasn't been too tough for me. I have often explained to my class that I can get pretty angry on the highways and uh, I can have a very critical nature. So sometimes it's easy to identify these practices and other times maybe some deeper digging is needed. And we should uh, take stock of our lives, like taking an accounting of our hearts, our minds, and our behaviors. And that's necessary because the next thing Paul says is a don't. Don't let sin reign over our bodies to obey evil desires. So after taking an accounting of our weaknesses and wrong desires, then we can be more focused on what needs to be changed. We can make plans to avoid things. We can begin to starve the old man. He, he next continues with another don't. Don't continue offering your body as instruments of sin. I think this is speaking to the very hard work of changing habits. We're not to allow our minds to be used for sin. We're not to allow our voices to speak in sinful ways. We're not to let our eyes and our hands and our feet be used for sin. And as most of us know, it's hard to change habits. But the good news here is that we are also to be practicing good habits to replace them with. And finally, and that's what I was referring to, the last one is a do. Do present yourself as alive to God and your members as instruments of righteousness. As Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So studying the scriptures seems to be top of mind here on how we learn new practices. Participation in the life of the church so that we just don't simply show up, but that we're getting involved and we're acting in service. Also, we need to identify so that we can use and develop our spiritual gifts for the benefit of those around us. So in closing, Paul teaches us that we are no longer under law, but we are seeking all righteousness while we live under God's abundant grace. As G.C. Burkhauer, a renowned seminary professor, once said, the essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics or practice is gratitude. So let our lives be lives of service, motivated not by duty, but by love of God and gratitude to Him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the gift of the Word of God, for the scriptures that we can study. Just, there just is no end to the depth of your truth that we have before us that we can study and meditate on. And it's a huge gift and we are very grateful for it. We thank you for the opportunity to come to church, to listen to great sermons, and to participate in Bible studies with our brothers and sisters, and to become familiar with the scriptures, to be reminded of what we've been taught and to seek the truth you have for us that applies to our life. 
Father, we pray for each one listening. We pray for everyone in the church here that you would continue to protect us in our health, that you would give us a greater focus on you during this time, and then when you bless us in our walk, and we look forward to the day when we actually will become, be able to come back together and say happy Palm Sunday, happy Easter as we're all together in church again. We ask your blessing as we go now in Jesus' name, amen.